Welcome to Studio Stories, a podcast that explores the backstory of some of our best-known music. We talk to artists, producers and engineers about how their role in the creative process helped bring some of New Zealand's favourite albums to life. I'm Dean Young, and in this episode, we go back to 1992 and the making of the debut album for Auckland band Dead Flowers, Skin of a Stone. The early 90s would see a sea change in the musical landscape thanks to the cultural explosion that emanated from Seattle. With bands like Nirvana, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, the world of rock music in particular would be forever turned on its head. If you were in a rock band in 1992, the influence was almost inescapable. For many bands of the time, this wasn't a leap onto the latest bandwagon. Instead, it was a stripping away of the makeup, the spandex, and the songs about getting laid that was to reveal the classic rock and punk leanings that inspired many to pick up a guitar in the first place. The birth of Auckland's Dead Flowers in 1991 would be no different. Uh, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Ricky Harawera taku ingoa, he kai tito, he kai raku-raku, o te ropu mate putiputi nō reira tēnā koutou katoa. My name is Ricky Harawera and I was the lead guitarist with Dead Flowers for the first two albums. Hey, uh, I'm Brian Bell. I was the singer and songwriter of Dead Flowers um, from 92 to 99. We kind of got together on my 21st and um, it was this uh, massive kind of house on Glenside Crescent and my band, mine and Damon's band, who's also from Dead Flowers, uh, broke up and Ricky's band broke up around the same time. you got to remember, like, when we all got together, we'd all come from quite a uh, strong musical pedigree. Um, you know, Brian was in Bad Boy Lollipop with Damon. I mean, they were like the poor ticky, the young boys of the hard rock scene in the late 80s, right? Um, couldn't hold their liquor or do their drugs or anything like that yet at that point. <laughs> but, you know, obviously Brian is very, very talented um, uh, songwriter. And Damon was the spirit of Ace Freely and the call of Keith Richards. I'd just finished in the band Whiskey and Lace, um, who later changed their name to My World Crazy. Um, it was about 1989, 1990, yeah. And um, I, was, I was having a break from music. And I got a knock on the door one, one night and it was Dave, James and Brian. And I was like, shit, these guys mean, these guys mean business, you know. They're coming to my house in the middle of the night. Damon and I were such massive uh, fans of Ricky's guitar playing. Uh, we kind of thought he was um, he wouldn't join us because we are we are newbies on the scene pretty much. And they proceeded to try and uh, seduce me to come and have a rehearsal with them. It was at that meeting that I said, "Look, why don't you come to my twenty first? And uh, all my flatmates had gone out that uh, the morning of the birthday and got a whole like basically a clean sack of magic mushrooms. And uh, he told me like after 
you know, he joined the band and stuff that he thought it was going to be a complete fucking shitty, fucking boring party. But as he turned up, there's probably about 300 people there and everyone's like tripping off their nuts. So um, we got him high as well. And then we just talked about getting a band together. And that's basically uh, how the band started. They invited me to come for a jam and I, I said I'd think about it. And, um, but I was really, I was curious. And because I'd felt really respected, I, I went along to have a rehearsal with them. And I turned up, you know, I was there to, you know, I meant business, I wasn't there to muck around. Um, and so I had pretty much said, right, we're going to write a song right now. Toru Fa. After I had got together with the boys, Katie Tika Te Ara, the, the, the direction became very strong, you know, right from the, the get-go that we were going to be doing something. Every practice was a songwriting session and for, you know, basically a... a we're kind of prolific in that that were it, all the songs happened really quickly. They didn't really change or anything. They were like, we wrote them together and it just seemed to be this eclectic group of guys. There was obviously, everyone had their defined roles, you know, you had Rob Dollars and drums. Rob Dollars was from the Psycho Daisies. David was um, an avid music listener, right? Dave James? Dave was a relatively new bass player on bass. Um, so he was very well schooled in music. Um, he was into Coltrane and Miles Davis and, you know, all that sort of thing. Um, he'd, he'd come from a band called Hot Rats. But uh, really the main kind of um, crux of the songwriting was a uh, collaboration between Ricky, Damon and myself. Everything kind of gelled really easily and we wrote like about two or three songs in the first practice. Uh, my name is Roger Green and for... First three, four years of uh, Dead Flowers career, I was their live sound engineer and also recorded two of their three albums. I did a School of Audio Engineering uh, in, I don't know what year it was, 90 maybe, 91, uh, and uh, which is where I met um, Damon. For my uh, dissertation or whatever you call it, for your end of year exam, I recorded um, the, the demo of Lisa. We recorded that song... Um with Roger at SAE as a demo. And um, that was basically, we had, that was, was basically one of the first songs we ever wrote. That was really easy, the actual song. We wrote that in the first practice. I remember we started with a match. A match striking. And a sucking in of a cigarette. And then we went into the little guitar riff. Yeah, I mean, basically, and we never even thought beyond that song, and it was free recording at SAE, so, you know, that's the first kind of recording experience we ever had. I always used to ask, bro, who the hell's, you know, Kawhi Alisa? It was just kind of a, um, it was just like a, a pieces of certain girls I'd known, and and even, um, yeah, that just... Uh, yeah, just kind of damaged girls, maybe, and that, that's basically what it was, yeah. When Dead Flowers formed, there wasn't a outlet for the type of music we were doing. It's crazy to uh, look back at it now, but New Zealand music scene was pretty sparse back then. We were actually shopping for a label. BMG were sort of talking to us at that time. Murray came in kind of early, Murray Kamek from Wildside, and, uh, yeah, it was... It, we're having pretty quick. 
you know, he put out Rip It Up, obviously. He was really into the whole, you know, driving music. And he was looking for opportunity. There was this charismatic guy called Bill. He was Bill the Englishman. It's all I remember. He was an English guy. And he had a history with British recording label in the UK. And so he got really friendly with us. And because uh, we, we had a bit of a groundswell going, he'd come to all the shows. He was like our tour comer. And he, he urged us to get a recording done. We went in and we recorded Lisa, actually. My memories of recording Lisa are like this. Hey, Ricky. Hello, Brian. What are our memories of Lisa? I can't even remember where we did it. And then he reminded me and I remembered. We had done uh, Lisa with Terry Moore producing and engineering from the Chills. Yeah, uh, I remember driving up um, up there with, with Dave. Dave, you know, Dave James. Dave had a car and he had a flat and everything and he was like really independent. And we got to the studio and there was some fancy pants guy from the Chills. Terry Moore was engineering. And uh, so he, he had some money. So we were, you know, we were, we were always, you know, we were into that. We were into guys, people with money, you know. Terry was more in tune with um, which was the good drum track, you know, the, the good drum take, uh, whereas the rest of us, I mean, I don't know, I mean, I, was, I'm not, I wasn't at, at all versed in that sort of thing back then. And, uh, but he was, it, from the ground up, he was um, really attentive. So, you know, we were just loving being in that space at the lab, uh, Simon Street, I think it was, yeah. Um, but you know, it was our time, you know, fuck a poor way, uh, Timodi, Tipukinga, Tipudako. It was our time of blossoming, our our skills were coming out, and we were we were starting to, you know, tell our story. Yeah, I mean, fuck, they even put me in. I mean, Mo decided to, that it was a good idea to send me along to when he was mixing the track in uh, in lab, and I could tell that. Terry was like, what the fuck is this guy doing here? Doesn't, you know, what the fuck is he going to do? And so what I did was sit on the couch at the back of the fucking mix for about six hours. It's choice. Always touching, going for every EQ and compression and all the rest of it. It's feeling like a fucking fart in the spacesuit. And then Murray and uh, the guys at Festival Records, thought the vocals were mixed a bit too low, so they ended up getting Malcolm Wellsford to do a remix. And sure enough, Malcolm Wellsford's remix wasn't as good as Terry's, so we went back to Terry's. Lisa, I think, was, if not the first, but one of the first um, Kiwi singles on CD, and we thought that was so cool. So we we did pre-production at um, Queen's Arcade. We had access to a loft, the top floor of Queen's Arcade, there was a lift that went up to this, it used to be a speakeasy in the 70s, it was a illegal nightclub. So it had all the remnants of the nightclub, the bars and the stripes on the wall and the mirrors. It was a sweet ass, I'm sure it's like a million dollar apartment now, the sweet ass place on the top of uh, Queen's Arcade, and uh, so we got to practice there for free. And the, the the leftovers of someone was growing hydroponic marijuana in there and that. So it was perfect for us, you know, CD and, you know, dystop- dystopian. There was really no pre-production at all. <clears throat> we just wrote the song. I mean, we we didn't know anything. I mean, we, we seemed to be able to <clears throat> bring together a song fairly easily, but 
that's what pre-production means to me is um you know okay you got a song and then maybe you can you can um polish it and somehow bring out the best of it move it maybe you need a ride bridge or something there's none of that it's just like here's a riff i'm going to sing something over it we need like a pre-chorus here so someone comes up it all happens within five six minutes and Really, none of the songs, any of the songs changed at all. The thing about Dead Flowers was that everybody had had their skills, you know, their, their pukinga, and everybody took care of their own parts. It just happened naturally. You know, it was um, that was the beauty of it. The, the diplomacy uh, was equal measure with everybody. We got together, we wrote songs. They sounded good. We went on tour, so we maybe we got tight through playing on the road a bit. But that was it. There's no pre-production at all, no producer at all. I might have popped in here and there, but certainly I didn't help with the songs or playing, prepping the songs or anything. My role was I was a live sound engineer and the idea was we were trying to, I believe, trying to capture the live sound, you know, live, live feel. The band had their idea of what they wanted to do and I said, well, I'll record it, you know. I'll do it, you know, and and I think um, me offering my services for for nothing was probably a deal clincher. I remember it being very exciting. You know, we were going to do, we're going to record an album. It's going to be amazing, we're, and we're going to go down record at um, Full Rudd Studio down in down in, uh, just 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 north of Tauranga there. Yeah, I had a chat to Dave James last night about who, you know, why we ended up going to Mountain Studios. I think uh, it was a decision between Dave James and Murray Kamek. And I, we knew of this place in Tauranga. And um, obviously, we knew who Phil Rudd was. And his, his, his deal was better than anybody else's deal, you know? It was a very new fledgling. Uh, operation at that point. And if you, I think everyone was still a bit in awe of the fact that Phil had come to New Zealand and he'd set something up. So it was definitely something that had uh, it had attraction value. We were there like maybe two and a half, three weeks. It just seemed to make sense. And also getting away from Auckland was kind of a cool thing and definitely having, you know, full road in your corner was a cool thing too. It was a converted barn or converted. It was new on the inside. It looked fairly new to me. It wasn't like an old barn. Like it, it was a new place, brand it was kind of smelt new. It had a couple of amazing drum kits uh, and a handful of microphones and a mixing desk and about two outboard compressors. We didn't know what we were doing, mate. So we just turned up and we, there was enough microphones to mic the, the to mic everyone up. And, you know, there was a, a good set of drum mics and some leftover, leftover mics for the guitar and, and, and a, um, a DI for the bass and, you know, that sort of stuff. But it was a, a multi track, two track, uh, two inch multi track recorder um, and a nice room. And, and Phil Rudd was there. So that was cool. That had a bit of credibility, right? Well, working with Phil, you know, he's a, he's a rangatira, you know. The true essence of a rangatira is someone who does something and people follow him. So, you know, he, he, was, he was a rangatira to us. But, you know, we were young, we were cocky, we were ambitious. So um, we just got on with the job with, um, with Phil. Um, and he smoked, smoked mean blunts too. So that's what I remember. <laughs> uh, he, he was super cool. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm a 
massive ACDC fan now, and and I probably didn't realise how uh, what a how cool it was at the time. But I mean, the other guys certainly did. Um, but he was so good with stories and stuff, and and so I almost heard about the stories of ACD like ACDC before I was even really that well versed in the catalogue. Like he would talk about these stories about Brian Johnson about how in recording because his voice was so powerful, he would blow the ribbons out of these Telefunken mics, you know. They'd have to get like three or four Telefunken mics or U87s in the studio because his voice was so loud, he'd just blow the shit out of the ribbon. And he also had a great fucking uh, manner because obviously he knew we were fucking young and he obviously knew we were green. And he was really... uh, he understood that, and he, and especially for me as a vocalist, and it's all fucking new shit for me, he had a great manner down the can. So he'd be in the studio, and maybe I'm stressing out or because or nervous or whatever it was, but he, had, he was really calming on the cans, like, yeah, cool, Brian, okay, now we're going to do this and maybe focus on that and maybe hit that a little bit different or something. So he made it really super relaxed and... Uh, and he introduced me to like the tobacco and pot. He promised because I couldn't smoke anything. I wasn't a smoker, but uh, I wasn't even much of a pot smoker. But he goes, "Okay, if we do this, if you get this take done, I'll fucking roll up a fucking uh, little blunt for you, and you'll be you'll be sweet as." Yeah, there was definitely a lot of. He, it was the first time I ever had um, tobacco mixed with marijuana before, and. Uh, yeah, very Australian. He used to come in there and he would just tell stories of being on tour and offer his gruff advice, which everyone sat around like he was a, the camp leader around a campfire and listened to Uncle Phil tell stories. It was kind of, it was a funny old thing. He just used to pop in and out of the studio. He didn't really drive the things. He was just kind of, I guess, a studio facilitator, but popped in with a bit of words of wisdom, what they were, were can't remember what they were, but um, I got on all um, on right with him, uh, largely because I shut my mouth and just you know, let him do the talking, right? Okay, well, you know, flowers were tore to the core, you know, we were like, yeah, we always played live and that, that was our strong point, so that's how we got that synergy, that modi, you know, that we created that life force with, with each other. So the majority of everything we've ever, we'd ever done was um, record live all in one room, and then I would overdub solos and Brian would overdub vocals, pretty much, for the most part. They did multiple takes of, of songs, but not not endless takes. We couldn't afford the tape stock to do to do, do endless. I mean, you know, every, every two-inch... T- tape was a few hundred dollars, right? Uh, yeah, it's not like digital. I mean, there's no nothing digital back then, so um, you basically had to, to um, either commit to keeping a take or record over it. It's not like I had years of experience under my belt, and we we're going to try lots of clever things. We had room mics, we had uh, close mics on the drums, we had a DI on the on the bass, probably a microphone in front of the bass cabinet, uh, and a, a single microphone in front of both guitars. It was only twenty four tracks in total, so it's not like today where you could just keep adding stuff. You had to make uh, uh, pretty cr- critical decisions back in the day as how what you're going to use to record um, this uh, you know we had 24 tracks 
So there was kind of a lot of playing as a band and a little bit of overdubs and stuff. Um, I think we ended up doing a lot more when we went up to Auckland. We did a lot more guitar overdubs in Auckland and and a lot of vocal and all the backing vocals and all that sort of stuff up in Auckland when we went to went to Air Force Studios. We we basically did everything at uh, Mountain. Uh, we recorded one song at Air Force called Everything, which was a B-side on uh, the Lisa single. Um, and... Um, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I'm sure you know. It's been a long time, so I don't. But I do remember this really well. So we had everything on two inch, and then took everything uh, to Air Force to basically mix. We kind of already mapped out. Okay, we're going to get two or three songs done today, two or three songs done tomorrow. So there's a couple of times when, um, like Phil, kind of um, told Rob, who was like this six foot four curry of a man to um hit, hit the drums harder because he wasn't getting the sounds right and and then full played the drums in front of them and Phil's like i said five four maybe and just got down and, and we're using his kit as well like he let us use the fucking acdc kit and just told rob to hit the bejesus out of them and you know maybe there was a couple of times that ricky wanted a <laughs> really um uh, use some recording hours to really nail a solo or whatever. You know, I was I was really very confident in my abilities and had enormous faith in what I was doing musically. So I would try anything that you know that was what I was about in those days. I, I just decided I was going to do something. That's it. I'd do it because um, you know you got to remember these were our club days. Um, you know, clubs were our dojos. We were you know we were you know I was a weapon. All preparation, everything else came second. I don't think we ever really did a song more than three three times we did live with everybody and then i think after like uh six or eight days we had all the rhythm tracks and then um uh the rhythm session rob and dave went home and uh and um we focused on uh solos guitar solos overdubs and vocals i mean i don't, I don't know how many singers are actually fans of their own voice you know and i definitely wasn't but I mean, we'd we'd been on the road a lot, and and obviously had a job to do. So I mean, I don't I don't think I was freaking out or anything. It's just like you just wish you sounded like fucking Ray Charles or something, and you don't, you know. So I mean, that was my only issue with it. When you're hearing them bone dry, and and, and so that's the only issue I had. It's just, but I mean, you just get over that because, like I said, you got to get you got to get it recorded. I remember Brian. He was really really wanted to do a, a really hard on himself and really wanted to, to do as good a job as he could. And he was his worst critic. He would go, you know, and he would be harder on himself than 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 anyone else. And he wanted, um, of course, he wanted to do the best job he could and worked really hard at it too, till all hours of the night. And do you get your best job in, in the middle of the night? Maybe not. Well, mihi, mihi means to acknowledge, to acknowledge, right? So it's not a word that you would have heard commonly back when we were doing music in the 90s. And that was a good, that was the good thing about it. That's what I embraced. Ricky was going through some growth there, which is obviously a thing to this day, right? So he's just beginning that sort of um, a journey of kind of looking to his whakapapa and all that sort of stuff. I was never scared of 
using our uh, indigeneity as a po, as one of our po, because we could never compete with anyone overseas anyway. So uh, mihi was a, a an ode to, was a mihi to my father who had passed away. The lasso won't die this friend of mine. You know, Ricky lost his father when, uh, who was a uh, really well-known and well-regarded uh, Māori entertainer in the 60s, you know, kind of like Howard Morris and uh, similar to that sort of thing. The co-papa behind that was I had a hui with, with Brian and I said, why don't we write a song for both of our fathers, because his father had passed away too, I'll write, I'll write your one and you write mine. And um, so I knew the story and so I wrote that song uh, for Ricky and for Rungi and, um, you know, I told him about it and, you know, the guys liked the song. And so he decided to get his um, auntie in uh, to sing the front of it. My auntie Mari, she sung that mihi intro, and then Brian, that was Brian's song to my father. So I did the music for his one, which is Karma. It's about my dad, like, because I, you know, I. When I, I finished school and then I went to law school and that was sweet with him. And then uh, halfway through my first year of law school, I end up, this Deep Flowers gets together. And then fucking, you know, we're in the studio recording Lisa and then we're doing an album. And, and, and then I told him I'd left law school and I was in a band and that was just like the worst thing for him. To sum it up, I rang him from Air Force Studios because I knew it was thought I was a, doing a stupid thing and told him Hey Dad, I'm in the Air Force studio this big studio in Auckland and we're mixing our songs for his first album and I've been signed and this is how straight and dumb he is with kind of any sort of pop culture thing he, he just paused after I said that and he goes oh Brian you'll be dead by the time you're 25 from a marijuana overdose <laughs> and then I mean and then he <laughs> you know he hung up I think there was some talk about maybe mixing it down there, but I think we soon realised that um, there wasn't a lot of gear. We transported the tapes up in Auckland and we put them on the machines and uh, they was like, oh, it doesn't sound the same as down in Mountain as it always is. And, and I learned to think about um, calibrating tape decks, which is something I had never thought of before, which is something, of course, we didn't think about that and didn't record any lineup tones or anything sensible like that. So we do some guitar solo, some overdubs. We do a lot of um, nighttime sort of vocal stuff. Because, again, I can't stress enough how fucking green we were. Um, 
we didn't really know that much about overdubs, really. Like, um, as in, obviously, we knew you could do them, but um, it was like there was fuck all BVs. There was like, you know, you get your you get your band down, so then you have to do the vocals and you got to do the guitar solo. And then at the, maybe the last couple of days we thought, oh, yeah, what about that thing called backing vocals? So, I mean, there's actually subtle backing vocals on the whole thing, really. But any that are there probably happened in the last couple of days. We had no fucking clue. Obviously, we wanted it to sound amazing, but, um, yeah, we had no idea. And, you know, uh, in all fairness to Roger, Roger probably didn't know either, you know. He, he was green as well. I think we did as good a job as we had time to do and given the fact that that no one knew what was going on no one knew really knew what we were doing we all tried our hardest and i think we we made something which is, which is really good You know, the production for the first album was just was just pretty much um, like it was a starting point, um, and uh, we all had to start somewhere. So we just went in, um, you know, very well prepared. And I guess the evolution was to begin because you look at um, the Cult Electric compared to Sonic Temple. You know, you have to have that evolution, um, which we hadn't created at that point. So I guess we were just excited to go in there and we had enough sensibility collectively um, because, you know, it's a wānanga, right? The band was always a wānanga. It was like wā means time, nanga means to chew. So it was open discourse. Everybody had their part. Everyone had their, um, yeah, everyone, everyone, um, we all created the album together, yeah. Made decisions together, yeah. Yeah, we didn't double track fucking anything. We didn't fucking... Any of those pretty rudimentary, rudimentary studio tricks that just boosts the fucking recording, you know? And it's like uh, we didn't have, like, um, a producer, whereas I think Phil was just like, you know, just because we were going to mix it somewhere else. Uh, so Phil was like, okay, well, that's going to be taken care of in Air Force. The mix, I remember, and the thing about the mix, I mean, we'll, we'll go back to that, is it was – all, all manual. So every, in addition to trying to get the um, the sounds right and the balance right, the whole song was hands on faders moving it live, hands on faders, hoping to get it right. If we didn't get it right, stop, and we'd record it live to two track and possibly dat. Uh, and we'd just have to, if we mucked it up, we'd have to roll it back and do it again and do it again and do it again. Brian, I think Brian was there and I think Ricky was there for most of it as well. Um, it was us in the middle of the night. Well, we were there all hours, but again, uh, we didn't know what we were doing really. And uh, we just got, uh, maybe if anything happened, stressed out when, you know, when, when it's kind of a song's coming to its completion and we're about to, uh, bounce it down. It, maybe there's some. This is my recollection anyway. That there was some stress that it wasn't sounding as it wasn't sounding like a fucking album that was done in Abbey Road or something. You know what I mean? Mixing on the big speakers in Air Force Studio and then getting so fatigued that we couldn't really decide whether we we're doing a good job or not. 
playing the tape and patching it into the um, dubbing room round in the the corridor was a little place where they did cassette dubbings and stuff, and they had a little pair of NS10s, which are a little speaker, small speaker, and a little thing. So we would couldn't we were so fatigued as to what we were were and were not hearing in the main room that we ended up listening to a lot a lot of it in the uh, well, I remember doing that. Um, having to check everything in the dubbing room for some unknown reason. Well, I'm, what I'm most proud about with Mati Puti Puti is the whanaungatanga, you know, this, the spending time with uh, those guys. And, you know, it was a huge self-esteem boost to me at a time in my life when I had not a great opinion of myself. Um, I was in a, in, a, in a ropu, an opetoa, you know, we were warriors, we were in a team, and I had a, you know, I had a good role, you know, I... I I fucking mana, yeah, fucking mana. Um, you know, it raised my mana. I, had, I was actually useful. We had a lot of fun. You know, Brian and I would eat, you know, Georgie pie and Steinies for lunch, and um, you know, two minute noodles. And you know, we were that sort of inner city lost youth. You know, living in old broken down warehouses. You know, paru paru circumstances, but loving it, loving life, and just loving, you know, wanting to be, you know, a rocker. Well, I do really love um, Nahi because uh, it's, you know, and I, I do like Karma. Like, I, I both thought they're kind of like, kind of, uh, you know, one was about my father, one was about Ricky's father. Uh, that seemed to, and, and getting uh, Ricky's auntie in, that was a really special moment. She was super nervous. You could hear the, the wavering in her voice. Um, but it was, that that made it that much more special, you know, and that's uh, that seemed like a that seemed like we had um, we had gone above our, you know, I don't know. There was something special about that moment, just even getting her, even who recording that, and then yeah, and and it just kind of that adding that to the album, like it's not just a fucking black and white rock and roll album. I don't know, not that there's anything wrong with that either. It's just like uh, they seem to have, um, yeah, they, they, those are the two songs that kind of like, oh, that, that I still look back and well, they still, they, they haven't dated because the the themes are still the same and, you know, yeah. I heard the album the other day for the first time in like 30 years, Um uh, I put it on, I put it on Spotify and I heard some of the tracks and yeah, yeah, uh, you know, there's some pretty good, the songs are great. Um, I don't know if I did the best job recording them. Let's say we we tried our best as 20-year-olds uh, and not really knowing what we were doing and I thought we ended up with, with something that, on retrospect, 20 years later, 30 years later, it's some some good tracks. Well, my high points with Skin of a Stone was always performing it live. I guess I, you know, we had um, we had grown with those songs before we even recorded them, so we'd weeded out the chaff. Um, so performing it live was always, you know, edgy because we were alternative rock, hard rock. We weren't jock rock. We weren't, you know, we weren't punk. We weren't pop. So everywhere we, we played, there was never really anywhere set up for that. Um, so we were, you know, we were we would do the university circuit, you know, the B the B's, you know, the B station, 
circuit um and we never chose the easy path we you know we didn't sell out to the pop format um we, you know so it was that's why it was always edgy for that reason you know and i didn't care about people's tall poppy opinions um you know i had that uh, there's that saying koa e mate fike mate ururo, which means don't die like a octopus die like a shark so you know don't be a pussy in other words so you know and I was a, I was a contradiction in that I was a Maori that wasn't playing reggae as well. So, you know, um, so skin of a stone. You know, I got, I got to express myself with my kataiaha. You know, um, I I enjoyed soloing. Um, I loved clean licks. You know, phasing from the Western pentatonic into the arabesque lines. Um, it was just a real thrill to be part of a group of people who were rangatira, you know, leading something, going somewhere, doing something that had a positive energy and momentum behind it. So, you know, being productive, that, that was what I loved about Skin of a Stone, yeah. You know, you kind of, you go into these things, especially for that first album that's like, it's everyone in the band against the world. And, every, you know, that seems like the right attitude and fucking, but then again, you just don't know. I, think, I, I mean, I, I do wish we had a producer. But, I mean, again, music, like at the time, New Zealand music was, uh, I mean, it had been fantastic and there's there still fuck all bands doing anything, really. And, and that rock area, especially uh, you had, you know, she had and you had like, had like a hole and stuff. But there, it's, it was, I mean, it was basically, you know, Murray was relatively new to the whole game as well. So, it, I mean, it was, a, it's, it's charmingly naive what we did uh, that first album, and um, you know, just and then you know, you just kind of you kind of start getting a grasp as you get older. And was you know, I mean, 22, 20, 22 years old. It was a lot younger, twenty two years old back then. I mean, that sounds so fucking bung. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no fucking internet, no YouTube, no nothing. You just fucking as basic as you can be and it's like uh it's just like uh you know for what we did i think we did pretty fucking well you know yeah um look uh thanks very much uh tēnā koe e mara uh, mō tō whanaungatanga i tēnei hui hui um thank you very much for this opportunity um it was a pleasure and um he um he whakatauki um and that was what Auntie Mari sung in Mihi, which means as one fern frond dies, another grows in its place. So to all you fledgling musicians out there or whatever, even if you're old, just um, just go for it. Cut a, cut a few atu. I'm still making music. I'm still releasing it. Um yeah, get out there and go for it. Those were the studio stories behind Dead Flowers, Skin of a Stone. Huge thanks to Ricky, Brian and Roger for their accounts of the making of the record. Links to download or stream Skin of a Stone can be found in the show notes, along with how to follow the guys on social media. Make sure to leave a five-star review and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. Studio Stories is a Russell Podcasts production. Go to russellpodcasts.com for more information and follow Studio Stories on Instagram at Studio Stories Podcast.